recording, but my microphone wasn't with me. Chris Brown in the H Hour Studio. Welcome. Thank you for having me. How did you find the icebreaker? Um, challenging for some strange reason. The most simplest questions you could give, and I didn't have a decent response from well, many. You, you got uncharacteristic, <laughs> un- uncharacteristic for, for guests, amazed by some questions. So, what book are you currently reading? Wow. Wow. Ooh. I didn't want to say. <laughs> I didn't want to say AZ fundamentals of cloud and bore the living daylight. No, as you say, wow, it's several questions. It's quite amusing. It's quite amusing. <laughs> some people, some people find the, the icebreaker really difficult because they they'd like direct, strange, direct questions. Whereas the podcast, now we're just shooting the shit now. There's like, it's, just, it's like no pressure to give a fa- like a fantastic answer in your mind. You don't need yeah. to give a fantastic. It's just shooting the shit, right? Question for you. So, twenty six years you served for, mm-hmm. right? Across a variety of units. Yes. Uh, do you think? It becomes easier to. It's easier to, to transition from the military to civilian, the higher up the ranks you go. And the reason I ask that is because the higher up the ranks you go, the more exposed to civilian life you get, more exposure to commercial world you get, more interaction with civvies you have to have. So you kind of, you've gone through like a, maybe the ten first ten fifteen years of a career is institutionalization, mill, 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 but as you go up the ranks, there's more interaction with the community and stuff, isn't there, and politicians and all that kind of shit. What do you reckon? Um, I don't necessarily agree with that sentiment in that <clears throat> as you grow up into, you know, grow into the latter ranks of um, sergeant majors through to, you know, commissioning, etc., that you're actually that exposed. Depend- it's dependent upon the jobs that you're in, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah good point. So, um, you know, I think you... Even, I think as you get older, I think it's more difficult to transition. I think it's a difficult journey. Um, I think you are more. I don't like the word institutionalized, but you're more ingrained into those, the ways, methods of what the military looks like. So, if you've done those 26 years, it's really hard then to jump into another environment, and it is it is a it is a completely different world, a different environment to transition into. So I think, you know, you're older, you're not necessarily much wiser in that world. So I think it's really difficult. The younger, you know, the, the guys or girls that have done, the, you know, the, the 12 to 15 years, you know, they've, they've got something under the belt, they, you know, they've got some training, they've got a little bit of confidence, they've, they've bought, you know, I think they can very quickly transition. But yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it's any, it's easier for the, the long servers like myself. Yeah, in fact, it was horrific. <laughs> Depends on mindset as well, doesn't it? I I I did eleven years, mm-hmm. and I I I reckon my so I left in two thousand and eleven. I'd say my transition didn't really. I didn't really transition fully out until maybe the last two years. I'd say, yeah, really, like it's been that long, and I think it's because I went from the mill to the Middle East doing private security, mm-hmm. which was, I mean, you're still in the same environment, like even geographically. You know, and you're in the same, you're around the same kind of people. And then when I came back from there, I only did like four years. I came back from there trying to get a job in the UK, a, like a, a proper job in the UK. I say proper, a nine to five job in the UK. Yeah. I was no better off than the four years before. I didn't understand the commercial world at all. I didn't, like, I, I thought, for example, you know, a, a company that does comms, everyone in that, everyone in that company is a, is a comms geek, an ex-signaler. You know, I was that naive. I didn't realize uh, it sounds ridiculous, but I didn't know about HR departments. I didn't know like like project management. Yeah. I didn't know about like it's, it's obvious, obvious now. But and that, bear in mind, I was like thirty 
four thirty-five. Yeah, yeah. And that that massive knowledge gap is crazy. It's crazy. I think it's taken me maybe six or seven years to understand those type of competencies. You know, the business, the commercial, you know, how it fits together, regardless of the qualifications that you are. You know, you go and you, you go and learn um, for, for your specific trades. Learning that commercial element is it's only you're only going to learn that once you leave and got to throw yourself into that. I specifically chose not to jump into that military environment. You know, going out and doing, you know, whether it be intelligence work or clearing minds from a previous, but you know that sort of combat type of world. I chose definitely not to do that, but I didn't transition at all. Not one bit. I failed. I failed. Absolutely failed royally at transitioning. Royally. I just chose to leave. I don't know what you mean. Um, I mean, I was a resettlement officer. So I was teaching people, you know, the two years prior to them leaving. Yeah. I was giving them advice. This is what you do. This is how you do it. This is the steps you take. Um, this is what your family should be doing. These are the courses you should do. Um, I was given an opportunity. I was so desperate to leave. And I was given an opportunity, which wasn't a great opportunity, and I just jumped at it and just clicked the seven clicks to freedom whilst I was on a course, a career course, and just went, oh, I've done it. I've got, I think I've made the right decision. Did no courses, no training, clicked the button, it all went really wrong. Lost, lost so much. What was the job you going to have to do? Um, somebody offered me a, a an investment into a, into a, um, a business, um, logistics business knew nothing about again oh. knew, knew nothing about logistics knew nothing about any of it how it worked like yourself no commercial experience um, yeah invested in it all went wrong so one minute I'm commanding and leading um, I was the last unit I was with the Gurkhas um, so gone through gone through all that 26 years of leadership and management within six weeks I'm driving a van dropping parcels off oh my god who was this person who was it a friend? Family member. Oh. <laughs> so there's two two royal two royal problems there, and they don't go into business with family. Take number one. Fuck that up. Um yeah. Don't I, in don't invest in things that you don't know about. Yeah. Fuck that one up. Tick number two. Yeah. yeah. All went royally wrong. How do I how do I escape from that? I you know, I've I've learned that myself. I learned that lesson myself and broken it twice. Don't go into don't go into business with family or friends is is the rule. Yeah, and I but but I did it. I've done it twice, and the second time's worked out all right. But the first time was a nightmare. I just but, it's, but at the same time, your family and friends are the people you trust the most. So it's kind of you're more inclined to believe what this. Not that I'm not suggesting this family member's lying to you. But you're more inclined to want what they're suggesting to work. Be, yeah. Pay more. To, uh, pay you. Pay more attention to it. Willing to take a bit more risk. You know, nightmare. I was vulnerable. It, I think, and it's something I learn now when I speak to people who want to come into the business and, you know, want to transition into to, to my field into a certain cyber. It's like, I know they are at a vulnerable point in their lives. They don't know everything. They're at that. They're at that point where in the icebreak about you know, what were you like at sixteen or seventeen? What, what advice could you give? These are people in the the forties and and the, they're still vulnerable now. They're as vulnerable as what they were when they were at sixteen, seventeen when they were joining. So I know what it's like to be that vulnerable. I know what it's like to try and gain the education and experience to make them more aware of what they're doing. Because they'll jump sometimes jump at anything. They literally will jump at anything. Because mm -hmm. they want to get out and they think, you know, the first job they go for, 
I want to get it. I need, I need to secure a job. And then, yeah, you just, it's a, just a vulnerable time. It was just terrible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even just, uh, even just applying for work and, and getting rejected is horrendous. Because you have, I, I don't know why, I had an expert, I did not expect, well, I expected to have a higher success rate in terms of applying for jobs or even just getting responses, when in reality, it, it just doesn't happen. I, I think at one point I had about 200 applications in across for different jobs, but most of them were through the online job portals. They were just collating all the information yeah. from online. And I had all these applications in. And I, I got to a stage where I just, not a tick, but I'd, I'd wake up through, my phone would be next to my bed. And I'd wake up through the night, constantly checking it to see if I had any responses in the middle of the night to see if I had any responses to any of the applications I made. But that rejection or lack of response has grown me down. It gro- I wasn't used to it. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't used to it at all. It was, it was horrendous. But the reality is, you, you most recruiters and most jobs you apply for, you're not going to get a response. You're just not. You're just not unless unless you're doing something very different to make yourself stand out, which is a which sounds simple, but it's actually really difficult to be able to do. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I um I was just really fortunate. Um mine was leveraging networks and friends. That was the the way in. The recruitment game, the C V game, the C V sifting game, you know, the getting rejected because words on the page weren't matching the algorithms that were you know, monitoring the, the CVs, etc. You'd be like, oh, I'm just not gonna get anywhere here. So you just got to leverage the support and, and that's that's still probably the case now, but I remember applying for a role and it was in the nuclear industry. My first role, I'm thinking, I've got to go back to what I know. I've got to go back to information security. I've got to go back to the security and intelligence world that I you know, was comfortable with, enjoyed it. And I was really fortunate. I remember it being in the um, the office of um, the warehouse with all the vans and everything. So I was in the office and, um, and I remember the call coming through saying, we'd like to award this job. And I sort of cried, I went, oh, fell to my knees. I was like, thank, thank the Lord I've got this job. You know, it wasn't the greatest job, but I got a, I got a job, yeah. I got a foothold, and then from there you can just sort of you know, get expand, can't you? And and it's been great since then. That's the thing, isn't it? It's easier to, it's easier to find the job, you, the right job you want to be, you be want to be doing for the rest of your life when you've got a job and you're yeah. employed. It's like take anything to get to where you want to be. Yeah, it may not be, and that's a difficult lesson to to um, to communicate. I think people want to leave and go straight into the 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 rest of their life career when they when they get out, and it's just not, it's just probably not going to happen. But on your point about networking. That I mean, I think that has, like you're saying, that has to be the primary way people should be seeking to get their jobs when they leave networking face to face. All the work, all the jobs I've had since I left, and I've had maybe four, five, or six, you know, significant jobs yeah. since I left. All bar one were through people I knew, getting and getting in. They involved interviews, but I got those interviews not through a CV sift, like you say, but because people I knew yeah. or people that were second or third connection. That knew of me, and I was able to reach out to you and got the jobs. But um. and it's not based upon they know you. I think the thing is there they know you, they know you as a character, how you behave, you know whether they like you, all the sort of social skills and the, the human skills, because people like you. You, you know you're personable, and you know those type of traits massively align you to some of the business world. It's not necessarily your qualifications that are going to set you mm. set you free. You know I think those networks where they go, he's a brilliant guy. You know, he's, he's not a wanker, as I say. You know, no wankers. He's not a wanker. He's a great guy. He'll help you. We can retrain him. We can, you know, he's he's, he's built a great moral fibre. He follows all those disciplines. Everything else can be taught. And um, I think through those networks, they're probably the easiest routes to get into mm. any, other, any, any sort of business world. 
That's a question, going back mm-hmm. military career. How did you, why did you go from engineers to INCO? Um, I went because I'd, I'd reached, I'd done about 14 years with the engineers. I'd done my recce sergeants. I'd done all the courses. I was qualified, you know, throughout. And I just thought there was just something maybe more, I wanted more of a challenge. I could see the future of the engineers. I could see where I was going. And it wasn't going to give me the mental challenges that I needed at that time when I was in my, um, excuse me, um, probably early 30s. That I needed something else. I could see the next six years being quite boring. I could I could ma- I could path it out to going. I'm going to be going on that op tour. I'm going to be doing that. You know, um, whatever it would have been. You know, I just could see what it looked like, and I wanted an academic challenge. And um, and I was a recruiter at the time. I was playing army rugby. Um, I'd gone to a recruiting office and a leaflet fell on the desk and they were looking for people with like more combat element skills. I say combat, you know, not like you guys, but in terms of I was a combat engineer. So they wanted more rounded skills. Um, they wanted people with interviewing techniques, etc. There was just certain skills that they wanted. I thought, I'll, I'll give that a go. And um, to my amazement, even now where everyone laughs and goes, there's no way that Chris Brown ever went in the intelligence squad in a million years. He's from Yorkshire, there's not a chance. <laughs> It's like this Yorkshire kid has gone into the intelligence world. It's like, yeah, I'll have, I'll have a give it a go. And I, and I was accepted. And uh, it was probably what it was. It was the best thing I'd ever done. I really missed the core. I love the engineers. Absolutely. It's my heart and soul is Royal Engineers. But, I, you know, equally like the challenge of the intelligence world. And it's and it set me up for my next my next journey till I retire, I think. So, uh, but no, oh, good. I've got a good um, vibe for both of those cat badges. What was so different about it? What intelligence go? Yeah, um, I don't know if you can talk about what you're doing, but what was what was so different about it? It was um, it was more it was more thinking, more analytical, um, more 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 on the sort of um, report side in life. Um, you would it, it was the it was the field of disciplines that it that it brought that you could get involved with in terms of counterintelligence, you know, surveillance, human. Ozint, you could do. There's lots of things that you could really delve into. Um, that was, you know, and there's almost an air of it's it's quite secretive. You know, you're operating in highly sensitive areas with, you know, sensitive information, critical sensitive information on on all sorts. And I really enjoyed that that feel. Um, I wasn't laying on my belly prodding mines, so that was always another one, wasn't it? So I was thinking, oh, it's another winter. We're going to go out on the uh, plains again and put mines in the ground and prod. And, uh, or go on the go on the bridges and put hay ricks around bridges. No. So is it mostly... To, so we, you, I know you're in information security-related world now. Was it mostly to do with that kind of work, with operations that were going on? In, in intelligence, yeah, yeah. So the first one was would have been Northern Ireland. Uh, oh, really? My first, my first gig with um, Joint Support Group, which used to be the old FRU sections. Yeah. So it's counterintelligence security for the whole of Northern Ireland, making sure that you know it was we were secure. How so fascinating! It must give you a very different insight into stuff that goes on operate operational operations that were going on with with the military at the time compared to. Your experience when you were combat engineer, for example. 
Yeah. So, so when it was engineering, you were you, you were building, right? You were securing. At this time, you're planning. You just make you're making sure, based upon all the intelligence that you were given, from all the different intelligence disciplines, that you aligned to the security plans for the protection of the, of the you know, of all the soldiers and all the camps. You know, so you you would base your security plan on every bit of intelligence that you could find. Um, so it, again, it aligns to it very similarly aligns to what we're doing now in the sort of cyber world. Mine with them was more of a physical aspect, so a massive defense in depth approach to security. Um, I usually talk about it and teach it, you know, call it an onion, like an onion skin, work from the outside, from the fences, the lights, down to the weapons, down to the docks, down to the people, and all the intelligence that supports that, just to make sure that. But, you know, when we go on ops, we're secure. So a lot of planning. I really enjoyed the planning rather than doing the digging. Mm. Yeah. And then, so I'm assuming that just that taste of that, that background when you were in the Inc. Corps, that, is that what led you to the cybersecurity world outside then? Yeah. Yeah, no, hugely, because it was an information security type job and role. Firstly, it was the physical. So it would have been all the physical... Um, plans for, like, you know, for places like Sterling Lines, and we used to, you know, you'd go and inspect and just make sure all the security was in place, right down to the documents. But it's in a, it was in a physical sense. So all the process procedures, the policies, everything that you know, you need to make sure it's secure from a physical sense. I just translated that and used that same methodology that defence in depth methodology, but then understand the cyber world, translate that into, you know, what what IT looks like, but use the same model. That's how I that's how I still So sorry, so the so so physical um protection of camps and like the like you said, the layers, the protection against not nice people trying to get access to information or mm -hmm. things. That responsibility for assessments and planning lies with the Inc Corps. Yeah. I didn't know I didn't never knew that. I never thought about it before, though. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you I mean, it makes sense. No, I think about it. It's intelligence-based security, isn't it? Threat-based mm. threat, intelligence-based security. What's the threat? Apply proportionate security measures to that threat. Make sure that the proportionate security measures meet a certain standard. Make sure that people are operating within them, follow against the rules and the processes to make sure it fits. So, before you go into any fob or whatever you're going into, threat-based analysis. What's the what's the you know the best security measures proportionate security measures that need to go into that um, environment, same as it was in Helmand, same as it was in Kabul, and same it was in the FOBs. Same process, same it was in Northern Ireland. What years were you there in Cork? Two thousand and ooh, two thousand and two to about two thousand and eleven, something like that. Because and the reason I ask is the information security world was changing at a rapid fucking rate during that time, wasn't it? Absolutely. When Facebook, 2007, Twitter was 2007, wasn't it? You had smartphones coming about, what, 2004, 2005, 2006, smartphones started coming about. Hmm. People started getting loosey-goosey with their personal security, uh, as did serving soldiers, sailors and airmen and women. Absolutely. How did uh, That must have been a bit, of a, a bit of a nightmare to try and um, move and change with the times. If you, well, it's interesting. Yeah. I, was, I was sent to a, a unit... Um, um, down south. Um, <laughs> yeah, 
it was a anti-terrorist anti-terrorist advisory training unit, and it was specifically there to inform all the troops on the threat um, threat actors um, against specific technologies. Bringing you this podcast today are the Aardvark Group. Founded in 1982, Aardvark has established itself as a major player in its field. Renowned for its exceptional technology and innovative propositions have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Aardvark is foremost a humanitarian organisation working to help rid the world of the explosive remnants of war. Their technologies are uniquely developed by operators for operators, which ensures that every product, system or platform that they provide conforms to the essential criteria of stability, survivability and reliability. Aardvark know that to have a truly lasting, positive impact, their technologies must be cost-effective. So they've commissioned a number of projects with their research partners to develop technical innovations with the core aim of delivering affordable solutions that can be deployed directly into communities to reduce the incidence of accidents and deaths due to explosive threats. Aardvark are headquartered in the UK with offices in the United States of America and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You can find out more about them by going to aardvark.group, not just about the products and services they provide, but also about the incredible work they do to support the military community and military charities. Go to their website, aardvark.group, or find them on social media, the Aardvark Group. The capabilities, the tactics, the you know the techniques and procedures that we're using as technology um, sort of increased, like you said, the smartphones. Um, if we think back then, the, the, the security in place from a technology perspective was nowhere near what it is now weren't even in the same ballpark, but yet we still had the smart technologies and the IOTs, et cetera, that was operating in the environments, which, you know, terrorists were using to some great advantage. So, you know, they've got to be briefed. They were briefed, but you know what squaddies are like. <laughs> They'll bypass anything, won't they? They'll bypass anything. So that was always an interesting uh, interesting world. So, What about, um, what about now, so since you've been out... In the same, in kind of the same, there's been the same fast-paced change, I think, in as there was then, but now with the way states are using, are using um, things like social media tools, things like, uh, well, you're basically going much more uh, focused on trying to breach yeah. other state security information security measures to yeah. uh, to, to to cause. A massive there, but, but the sorry, the but they go in for commercial entities as well, right? No, absolutely. So yeah, talk about that if you can. Probably more commercially, re really, and research and development. Okay. So their offensive ops through social media is obviously huge. So it's almost like um, we termed it in those days now, like psychological operations. So the psyops, offensive ops in that area through social media, um, influencing is still massive. It's still part of a, you know, a big um, threat vector from nation states um, which we're seeing cons consistently but yeah certainly more in a, a commercial and um, research research and development group and critical national infrastructure not to forget critical national infrastructure which, which I'm talking about water nuclear energy uh, some government sectors etc so yeah 
and it's something that the, the operational technology side is not necessarily um I would say not as secure, but the focus is not always on the operational technology, and it, and it poses probably one of the biggest safety threats to the country, probably. Really? So, um, is, is it, um, would I be right, right in saying that it's China the ones that are, are, are the main threat at the moment? Because uh, I can't imagine Russia have got much, uh, got a huge capability. It's saying that, it says they have, I mean, the media says they have, but I seem to think they have, They've got less capability than, than the media say. Or am I talking rubbish? Uh, do you know what? I'm not, you know, and I wouldn't want to be mis misplaced on anything. I'm not a counter threat sort of advisor. Um, you know, who are the who are the you know the main players in, in you know the main threat actors have always consistently remained the same main players and threat actors. Um, it's always going to be the you know, the, the, what we used to term the, the casual countries, the countries to which security reg regulations apply, you know, the big fives. So, you know, it's it's still, I don't know, without going into detail, they, they, you know, they're still there, they're still active. Um, and yeah, both of those nation states are still um, targeting our industries. What kind of what kind of what kind what are their preferred industries to target apart from the critical national infrastructure, right? Um, what, what are they looking at targeting? Because you mentioned R and D as well. So, what are they looking at? Um, well, we spend billi we spend billions of pounds. It depends, you know, we spend spend billions on research. You know, look at the nuclear sector. You know, uh, how how much they they're working to reduce um, uh, nuclear waste. You know, the research into that, the research into um, the um, technologies that are going into space. You know, there are there are nation states out there that don't want to spend billions in that area will quite happily take that information and use it uh, it's, a, it's a cheap way cheap route to market for most of these countries so was the question around what sectors they're specifically targeting do you know what I, it's, a, it's a tough one I, I don't want to be misquoted on it but I think I can have an opinion, obviously, but I, you know, com commercially, finance. There's things that cripple countries, and there's certain mm. things that would cripple, you know. And I think finance is one of them. Government sector and finance. I think I saw, I, I saw, I heard, a, read a recent report, and it was it was to do with the states about how vulnerable the the their power infrastructure was, and the power stations were how vulnerable they were, and how how far behind their their security measures were, not physically, but. Um, uh, Virtually, digitally, what's the right term? What's the opposite of physical? Uh, virtual. Virtual. The virtual world. Virtual. The virtual world. Operational technology. Yeah, virtual world, and I imagine it's not. We're not too. It's not too different for us. Um, uh, but I may be wrong. But how, so, how do you? What's the? What's the methodology to go toward to protecting yourself against these kind of threats? Um, firstly, have a good. Um, Detection and response capability. Yeah, I try trying for a sort of listener or viewer, trying to think of that physical world for people that really don't understand the virtual world. Try and think of the physical world, and the first thing you do in the physical world is to think about the boundaries and the protections and the detents and and and, and you know the, if we could say the patrolling. So you look at the any camp you've been in, the first barriers, the 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 fence, isn't it? The gates, the guards the lights, the intruded detection systems. So think physical, but then 
look at the technologies in a virtual world, you know, the extended detect and response capabilities. Um, so the protect and response, the protect and response capabilities tooling that protects networks has to be like, you know, spot on, you know, it's, um, it's the first barrier, isn't it? It's the first barrier. Give me an example of that tooling. Um, well, there are, so they, there are, there are, there are a variety, a variety of security incident event response, um, tools out there, um, from, you know, leverage used in Microsoft, AWS, different systems that they can, uh, they can leverage. Um, don't particularly, I mean, Lee might know <laughs> probably more about the, the, the key tooling. What's the tooling, Lee? Oh, you've got, it's got no microphone. Oh, He's no. not here. What's the tooling? Example, come on. Sentinel. Oh, yeah, that's one of them. The typical one. He could go on. I mean, they're, they're more like brands, aren't they? So it's more, it's more about, you know, your, your firewall is like your sentinel. Yeah. Okay, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm always really, really you know, cautious about, you know, when somebody says, oh, what tool, you know, giving, you know, like solutions. It's, yeah. It really is, you know, the, the solutions are just part of that boundary defense, well, that firewall. Uh, firewall's a good one, right? So people who know the word firewall, mm -hmm. they'll think, oh, that does something to do with computers and protection and stuff. Explain firewall for people. A firewall um, is, it, it's exactly what you're probably saying on the tin. It is that, it is that physical fence. It's it's a it's a technology whereby it recognises um, malicious activity or code. Um, it reads the code, and when I say code, I'm trying not to take it too deep, but it's going to recognise what is classed as malicious code as it's coming across the network, across the wire. It will read it, understand that it is, you know, it recognises being malicious um, and prevents it. It stops it, it blocks it, and it doesn't come into the network. The firewall is the front gate with the guards the on it, right? It is. Yeah, and it's checking your ID card. This is good. I like this. I'm learning. Go on. It's checking your ID card, and on those credentials, well, I work in IT. <laughs> yeah, it's checking the ID. It's checking your ID card. It's saying you're not coming in, or you're coming in, based upon those recognised signatures on the ID card, in a physical term. Excellently put. Yeah. And you go, you're not coming in today. But equally, people can doctor ID cards, can't they? They can doctor credentials. So. We've always got to be one step ahead. They've got to be finely tuned. Your guards have got to be finely tuned to recognise the difference between a good ID card and a bad one and bad credentials. So we constantly finely tune and configure the firewalls to ensure they're up to date. They recognise what code is acceptable, what certificates are acceptable, what's not. If you're not tuning them, then anybody walks through the gate. So it's and again, it's only as good as the people that are managing them and reviewing them and keeping them up to date and retuning. Same as it would be on the physical sense with the guards. It's only as good as the guard on the gate. But firewalls are also physical bits of kit as well, aren't they? Absolutely. So you've got two aspects to it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Firewall configuration, key. Yeah. Detection response, key. Um, but again, I'm always trying to relate it back to what that physical environment looks like with the guards on the gate. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, and it becomes more of a drama if you're outsourcing any of that, any of that protection or that technology to people like 
Yeah. Well, you mentioned some of the companies, AWS or whatever, because you yeah. then you rely on the on what their levels of security are. Yeah, I, th I think, and that's a, and it's a good point. I think um, you've got to provide them with the security requirements. You've got to ensure through you know detailed assurance work that the security levels that you want are absolutely you know nailed at the start. So if you're designing security and you're looking at your detection and response capability, you want to be you know really clear on what you want that to be tuned to, how it, how you want it configured, what are the rules for those configures, configurations, how it's managed. You want to know who's managing it, who's responding to it, who's reporting it. Um, equally, when you're sending it out to sort of third parties and vendors, um, you know, some some people rush to market. So it's like, you know, fix it, I want it in now, and they pay a lot of money, and, you know, they put these solutions in, which is brilliant. They get, you know, off-the-shelf off security. Maybe not, maybe not tuned to the level of security you might want. So you've constantly got to do assurance activity against that. So, and it's never built in from the start in most cases, I see. Mm. Why do you think, uh, one of the things I've noticed over the last few years is that there's, there is a, a much higher interest in people leaving the military and going into cybersecurity. I first realized this, I had a lady on called um, Liz McCulley, who's an ex-army uh, officer. And she got out and went into, do you know Liz? No. Do you know it now? So she went out and got into cybersecurity. That's the first I'd heard of it being suited to XML. I hadn't thought about it. And uh, and the way you're analogizing things there to the physical world and you know the the uh, camp protection, for, for example, makes sense. But why do you think it's getting more on people's radars now? Because it does it does seem people are getting out and getting interested in it. An interest in the actual um, the industry. The industry. Yeah. yeah cyber yeah. industry. I think. So like it used to be. Oh, I'm going to go out and do CP. <laughs> or I'm going to go out and do project management. <laughs> now, one of the big things is I'm going to go out and get into cybersecurity. I don't know where that I don't know where that has come from. I think we're on technology every day, aren't we? We're on our smartphones. The films mm. dictate what we, you know, where our interests lie. You know, there's there's hacking films all over. Every every spy film's got the hackers, and you know, it's got there's some element to I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Um, I don't, it sparks an interest, doesn't it? You think, oh, I could, I could get in that world. That looks interesting. I think I could hack. I think I could get into that system. Well, it was a Ooh. film called Hackers, wasn't it? Do you remember Hackers? Hackers? Yeah, Do you remember that? And There's that was in the 90s. And then, so that was, which I, I enjoyed that film. Pike, you know, I enjoyed that film. Yeah. And then the one, the next one that came along, the big one, was The Matrix. Because <laughs> Neo, Neo was a hacker, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, in inverted commas, a hacker. Yeah. He was a, he was a, he was a, a, a geek. No, he, but he was cool. But and he was the one. I think that's the that's the thing. It's cool. If you're the hacker, that's the cool bit. What they don't realise is it's like everybody wants to be they want to be the sniper. You know what I mean? They want to be they want to be the top end. And I'm not saying that because you're sat here, of course. Uh, but everybody wants to be that, don't they? Until when they actually get in, they realise that, hmm, perhaps I'm not the sniper. Perhaps I'm the gate guard. <laughs> perhaps I'm the guy that writes the policies for the sniper. <laughs> Perhaps I check to see if the, the sniper's policy. doing his job. <laughs> yeah, those sniper policies. So, so I think there there is a there is a, a huge industry out there within it. But I think based upon the use of technology, the films, etc. Um, but I also think it's heightened from a learning. You know, there's much more learning around cybersecurity. It's it's coming into schools. We're teaching it at schools. Mm. It's becoming sometimes part of that curriculum. There's education awareness, so there is a massive awareness for the for the youth um, around it, and it's an, and it's a growing industry. 
um, that I just think, yeah, they they all think they can lean into it quite easily, and, and in most cases they can. How does it break down in terms of the different uh, the different paths you can take within Indian within the industry? Because probably there's a misconception there that everyone needs to be a coder, everyone needs to be some flipping Python geek or yeah. whatever. But it's not. I'm assuming that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, absolutely not. I think um, you know my analogy would always be that you know you could stack if you, if you had to stack all the manuals of cybersecurity and information security on the floor, you you know you'd be talking. <laughs> you could be talking sort of. 20 meters high you know you're going to learn all that and i think it's you know the, the industry's broken down into lots of sectors from the technical the technical services you know applications building of applications building of codes um there's the things around data privacy there are security operation centers the management of firewalls the man management of detection and response there's teams of people that need to do audit and assurance um there's 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 teams of people that look after data privacy and data protection. You know, there's, there's there's so many sort of fields that you could go into counter, you know, cyber threat intelligence, threat analysts, maybe looking at the code. So whatever whatever skill sets that you think you b can bring to the table, it's not necessarily I'm going to be a coder. I'm going to learn Python, Java. It's that's that's not the case. I certainly would never have gone into that route. Never in a million years. And I, I've, I've tried it. Even when I did sort of did a master's degree, I was like, oh, part of that section was ethical hacking, which you know I struggled at the time because I didn't have the depth of understanding. Ethical hacking, go on. Oh, don't go there. Give me a one-liner. <laughs> What's ethical hacking? Ethical hacking. It's the ability to um, to test and validate the security of the systems that are in place. Okay. So you allow somebody to test. Um, your systems pen testing you allow, you allow them to go in there and test it is that the same as pen testing pretty much yeah okay yeah 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 so go in and give them the addresses or you can potentially do it from outside of the the wire again physical it's just like that we used to do and try and get into the i won't relate it back to physical again but it's it's exactly like trying to break into a break into the camp get through the first gate walk into the offices test the drawers Try and go into the drawers, read the information, but we're doing it from a virtual sense. We're doing it from a, a laptop, a set of systems that allow us to traverse the network to see where the vulnerabilities lie. And then when we find them, we go and we fix them. Going back to the physical sense, you lock your doors, you lock your drawers, you put paper in a, you know, in a folder. It's a, it's just, just again, it's just the same process. Sorry to keep going back to the physical bit, but for any of the listeners that don't know any of the that side of life, it's no, no, you know mate, trying to no. like paint a picture of like that defence piece and how to pull it together. No, it makes sense. Is there uh, so a lot of industries are moving towards remote working because it makes sense? But is it less so within the cyber security world? Because and the reason I ask is because if you're if you're using remote workers and that increases a layer of security you need to worry about because they're off-premises, for example, or they could be in another country, like a huge amount of uh, a huge amount of companies outsource certain software-related work to places like India, where there's like incredibly talented people who... Yeah. Who, who uh, you can pay less. A lot less. <laughs> you know, being blunt, you're being blunt about it, but is it is there a reluctance to do that in the cybersecurity world? Bringing you this podcast today are Rugby for Heroes, 
Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation founded in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whittaker, who was sadly killed on operations serving with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan in 2008. Rugby for Heroes fundraise for military charities. They do this by organising high-quality events which revolve around the themes of rugby, alcohol, live music, good food, good people. Since they were formed, Rugby for Heroes have raised nearly £120,000 for military charities. I have been a beneficiary of theirs in the past, and it's actually how I came to know about Rugby for Heroes, is when they reached out and helped me when I needed it most. And they have helped countless other individuals and countless other organisations help ex-military and servant personnel in their toughest times. Rugby for Heroes have got many events lined up for 2022. They've already held their first event. It was a supper club raising money for the 353 charity and they have got more supper clubs and more festivals on the way. Look at their website, rugbyforheroes.org, to keep up to date when the next events are. Make sure you get along to at least one of them if you can and I will see you there. I've been to every one of their events since I became aware of Rugby Heroes and like I said since they helped me out and I'll be going to every single one of their events in the future wherever possible rugbyforheroes.org or you can find them on social media at Rugby for Heroes at Rugby number four heroes again I think dependent upon industry dependent upon the level of security that you want um, you know let's just you know critical national infrastructure uh, government sectors, etc., where highly sensitive information, highly sensitive systems, um, you've got to look at the security requirements that you want for that data and how you want it to be managed. Um, you've got to build that into the contracts and understand um, what security is inbuilt with the vendors and third parties that are working over, overseas or abroad or who's managing it on a day-to-day basis. Certainly got to understand what access they've got, understand the protocols of security uh, whilst data you know, traversing across those network lines and how you can secure that. Um, you know, like I would say VPN technologies and et cetera, and the, the levels of encryption. So that there, there are some real complexities with managing data overseas. Um, there's certainly complexities around data privacy, different laws against different geographical locations. So it's, it's, um, it's not just a technology piece as well. You know, it's not just that fix of encryption. There's a lot to think about, um, Certainly, there's a human element to think about, um, you know, from the individual who may have access to that. You've got to have the assurances in place and the checks and balances to ensure that the people from these third-party countries can only access what they need to access and have the right to read that access. That's the difficult challenge because in most cases, you haven't got people turning up on the front door asking them, can you show me how... Can you show me your access? Can you show me how you do access? Um, mm. It's a difficult one to do. All you've got to do is just maybe take the assurances through their contracts, which is difficult. So, yeah, it's 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 not easy, but people are doing it. It's the cheaper option. Um, but, again, you've got to just balance your security requirements. What, is, what, what, uh, what does entry level look like into the, into the industry for someone getting out? So some of us leaving and thinking, I want to get into the cybersecurity industry. Where would they start? Oh, I, I, for me, they would just there are an absolute plethora of um, um, free training providers out there um, who would do basic information security, um, 
courses. There's Comp TIA courses, which are a little bit more technical. There Comp are c- TIA. Comp Comp TIA. I think they, that's okay. a, yeah. Um, that's a, a starting entry level type for of, free. Uh, they're not they're not free, unfortunately. Um, but there are providers. You know that Microsoft do a lot of free services for looking at cloud security as well. Um, there are um, certainly if you're in the military. You know, there's there's um, organisations like TechVets who provide TechVets yeah. tech who provide a, um, a large amount of free range of courses. I would always, you know, push people onto uh, into those. There's, you know, the commercially cyber cheap courses like they can do, you know, to get an understanding of of where they want to fit into the industry. I think that's the that's that's the difficult piece. I'm I'm sort of mentoring somebody um, who I actually recruited 20 years ago into the military, the female. Who she um, she's a physical training instructor now. She does it part time, but she's supported her family for the past like um, twenty years or you know as such. Once she's in her thirties now, wants to get into the industry. She came to see me the other week. We sat down, had a coffee. It's like, why do you get into Infosec? It was only then when I'm chatting to her, thinking, what's going to be best for you? What's your best route into market? How you you know where do you want to? You know, like we said, we could stack these books twenty meters high. Which which book do you want to pull out? Which area do you want to work in? Is it infosec? Is it hacking? Is it coding? Is it you know? It's hard to put people on that on that journey when they don't know the industry themselves. So I think doing the fundamentals of of cybersecurity courses, which are l- loads of free material on YouTube, and I, I've spent the last sort of four to six weeks just signposting. Um, I'm not sure what I'm saying, but signposting the name's Laura. Signposting Laura to these these areas to just to have a feel for what she might like. And then, you know, you don't want to spend an inordinate amount of money doing some technical courses that are just not fit for you. Because you don't need to go down that route. You can you can go in all sorts of areas. So I think getting the foundations, get it all free, find out where you think you want to be, and invest in yourself that way. And certainly if you're ex military veteran, go through tech vets. Yeah. So. What do you say? Yeah. So, so yeah, we've got. Um, so it's interesting. Um, you know, Bridewell um, massively support the Armed Forces Network. Um, they they've opened a. Um, we we have an academy scheme, um, which um, anyone can go. You know, you can apply and join. They've just had a partnership with. Um, it is Firebrand, uh, a leading training provider. So. Firebrand providing training for um, new new applicants for graduates to go through that. Um, I think it's like a three month training program, and the opportunity to maybe after that training program come into the workplace, or if not into our workplace, signpost them to another workplace as well. So, you know, I think Bridal really support that academic future, and it's not just for you, not just for young people. I was keen. I reached out to the CEO the other, the other week and said, "Is this just for junior people?" And he said, "Absolutely not. This is for anybody. You know, it'd be it'd be wrong to to do that. You know, graduate doesn't mean you're 21 and you just left university. It means you're retraining. You're wanting to do something else. And the industry needs, you know, mature as well. You know, you need some, you know, mature thinkers um, with a bit of a different background. They offer a, a different set of skill sets. Um, so yeah, um, lots of routes to market." As I said, loads of routes to market. 
Yeah, it's the challenge, isn't it? Is is understanding what options are there when you when you're in. You're understanding what options are out there to go and to consider, and then try and get a feel for each one. As you said, really difficult sometimes, or a lot of times. He's got he's got you got to learn by doing, right? And um, there's uh, I know I mean there's all sorts of free free course and training providers out there. I mean, in terms of the software side, like the the Code Academy is a classic. Code Academy. Yeah. Code Academy yeah. is a classic one. Um, but there's loads of, and you can, I think people are definitely more now, I think, more uh, willing to spend time when they're still in, do it, be more active and learning about things yeah. and going and doing some work on the side. Like I know uh, I, I did some work last, uh, the year before last, and uh, it was over about six, six, nine months, TV, in TV and film it was, and there was a guy there's a guy that's coming on and working on that on, on the weekends, and he was like a serving PTI, and he's not getting out. He's not leaving the military, yeah, but he's just, oh, I'll go and do this and just see what the industry's like, just because down the line, if and when he decides to leave, he's had an he's had an insight into it. He's built his network up as well. There's more people in it, and, he, and, and he'll be able to tick that ticket off as an option or cross it off as a not an option. It's the same with uh, like cybersecurity. Now, there's so many, there's so many ex-mill. There's, well, there's a lot of ex-mill in it. It can't be hard to find someone who's, like yourself who's willing to, you know, impart some advice and information and guidance on it, especially to to explain the different avenues you can explore within the industry. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on, whether it be LinkedIn for military people reaching out saying, what should I do next? What course of action, what course should I do to get me a job? You know, what, you know, and it's, and it's, diff it's not difficult, um, but it just identifies the problem that they don't know what commercial cyber looks like. It's we, you know we've branded cyber and therefore it becomes a technical problem. Apparently, you know it's, it, that's it, it throws connotations of technical coding, and you know we miss out on some absolute talent, certainly from all the armed forces sectors, in all the trades across, you know from. AGCs to engineers, all that experience that they can bring from the management, the leadership, the security. They know the, the fundamentals of security and the management of fundamentals of security is across most of the service lines. All we've got to do is just tap in to give them a little bit more extra knowledge in these areas. Um, and it's not difficult, you know, I've, I've done it. <laughs> so if I can do it and I'm the thicket from Yorkshire, um, anybody can do it. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think people under people uh, who are who are in they they don't realise how like they may be. I mean, let's take cybersecurity as an example, right? They may not have the any technical any knowledge not technical any knowledge whatsoever of cybersecurity information security. All they know about is some abbreviation that maybe is linked with information security and it's GDPR. I don't want, I don't know what that means, but I can't share some fucking information of personnel records or whatever, right? But I think where we undersell ourselves certainly is, you mentioned it there, like the leadership management piece, the leadership management and the teamwork, right? Because I think employers are much more willing, if you can demonstrate to an employer or they know from things like the Armed Forces Employee Recognition Scheme, Armed Forces Covenant, all those kind of schemes, they know that ex-military leaving have experience at all levels, at yeah. all levels, even just as a Tom, as a private, of some element of leadership and management and the and like the... The, the 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 ways to do it well and the ways to do it badly because everyone's either had a shocking commander, or they've had a great commander, or they've or they've been leading themselves. 
that side and then the teamwork piece like one thing everybody who leaves the military whether you did a year and then you know maybe you've got basketball and training or I did three or four years you know how how to integrate yourselves into the team and work together to achieve a common goal you know to break Absolutely. down tasks between each other you know to identify who is good at what you, you know how to uh, analyze what the problem is and decide how to approach it and we do that at every level yeah every level and the further the training they go you're better at it and the reason I'm saying it is if you've got all everyone has all that experience. So if you go and hit and step into a you know, step into an interview scenario or, you know, you introduce someone in the network like yourself, um, who knows your ex military and, and so knows some of the gaps there, they're much more willing to take someone who's got they maybe haven't got the level of knowledge or experience in the industry mm-hmm. that you would like them to, but you know that because of their background, ex military, their leadership management and teamwork abilities are fucking far and above what their civilian counterpart may or may not have. No, makes sense. It, it absolutely makes sense, and and I think it'll boil back as well to the values upon which that they've been ingrained within. Those discipline, that selfless commitment, the bits to just drive them on a little bit further, supporting others. You know that selfless commitment bit to just just support others and do things for others is is is, is you know is, is really is really key. But yeah, I think. It takes, but you, if, we, if we hark back and think, it wasn't, not everybody's got those values. Not everybody's got all the, the courage, the self, you know, in, in Civic Street, we, we did not follow those. So, you know, it takes a long time to ingrain those values, even in soldiers. But you buy by them, you learn by them, and you trained on them. Then you come into Civic Street and go, what, what are your values? And, you know, we talk about you know values and standards within the commercial sectors. Every company I've been with, they talk about the values and standards. I try and say, well, <coughs> knowing how long it takes an individual to really understand and follow those values and standards, it, it, it's a long time, and it's not just words on a page. It's training. It's holding them to account against the standards. Um, that's really, really difficult for companies, I think, to try and push on to, to the workforce. But it's it's doable, but you've got to keep reinforcing what your standards are, what your objectives are, your visions, your missions, and work to those standards within the business. But you've got to keep educating your, the, your staff and workforce to do that. It's uh, And you'll never get to the standard of what the military is. Because, no, the, because the, the implications of getting it wrong or having a bad actor within your team doesn't in Civvy Street, the implication of doing it compared to the military is, is so much different. In the military, if you get it wrong, the, the worst case scenario is you ain't, you ain't here anymore. You yeah, know? Yeah. Or you, you, you part of your team's like you anymore because they're dead. Whereas in Civvy Street, you don't, you don't get that. But I mean, to, it also fluctuates between people in the military, right? You get morons as well. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you, get, you get morons. <laughs> Complete morons. Yeah. But, uh, eh? There's a high bell end rate. There is a high bell end rate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is one thing. It is one thing that surprised me <clears throat> that I found really frustrating early on when I when I got my first normal job was uh, <clears throat> she point there like the accountability was how little accountability how little people were held to account for making mistakes. Uh, I, I, my first proper job was as a health and safety manager for not a small company, and um, I was way out of my depth, way out of my depth, and. Uh, and I remember someone, someone made a mistake. It cost about 30, he lost the company about 30 grand, which in the grand scheme of things wasn't a huge amount of money for what their revenue was. 
spent they made a mistake. It was obviously made a mistake. It cost thirty grand. That that thirty grand came out of someone's pot. Nothing happened about it. Nothing yeah. happened. They weren't held to account. There wasn't even any retraining or nothing. No discipline whatsoever. And I couldn't believe it. And it made me realise how important it is to have that that uh accountability for your own actions within you yeah, yeah. like because if if you make a mistake and you're not getting held to account then you're just going to go and do it again <clears throat> if you haven't got those values and standards and ethics like built into you for forth ingrained into you yeah. from when you were you know from a previous life and uh i find that um when i moved to the company i'm in now i stepped into so in my i work for Imarsat, and i stepped onto a team or a department which was quite heavy and heavily ex-military not heavily ex-military. There was a significant proportion of ex- ex-military there. The, the president of the of the department was ex-military, and the attitude within that unit was so far different to what I've experienced before. Because people, and this was the civilian, most of them were civilians. No one ever, most people hadn't had an ex-military background, but because of the way the president conducted himself, and the way that the other ex-military that conducted himself, people were much more open and honest about discussing issues or mistakes that have been made and holding themselves accountable and wanting to improve on something or prevent themselves making a mistake on the line. Yeah, It was a really interesting working environment, a really positive working environment to be in. Had, I mean, it was, uh, it was difficult. It was a difficult business unit to be in because of the nature of the work. But it was really good to be there. You like, you, you, I think people were more trusting of each other in what, each other would say or do or think or offer up opinions on things because then you just there's a bit more honesty going on there. People would hold themselves more accountable. It was a better environment yeah. to work in. No, th- that honesty and trust is absolutely fundamental to that. I think the the, the trouble I sometimes have is coming that when you, I think when you've done a certain amount of time, you become you can be slightly arrogant and overconfident in your ability. So if you're new into the industry. Certainly, you know, you've done, you know, you've got to the top of your tree. You've been and done your objectives every year. You've done every course. You're nailing it. You are the kingpin. And when you get into that civilian environment, it's not so much you're no longer the kingpin, but the, I think the attitudes continue or that, that dominance, that confidence levels are there, which is great in some respects. But I have to tailor it down sometimes with the, with the guys that come in and, you know, just just temper it a little bit. So some of the attitudes and some of the sort of ways of working, you know, which they're not used to. And it's, it, I almost feel like you have to coach a little bit sometimes, coach them into the, the business world. That's all you're doing. It's just tweaking them down a little bit. Uh, and, they, you know, I was exactly the same. You know, sometimes if you think you're Billy Big Balls, you've been up there, don't you? You've been the Sat Major, you've been the OC, and then you're not Billy Big Balls anymore. You are literally part of the workforce but you've got to use all the good skills and then those discipline areas those values you've got to bring that to the front and just step it down a bit tone it down a bit it's a bitter pill to swallow that is it's it's a, hard, bitter, it? a bitter pill to swallow well it's life in it yeah hard yeah you realise that you're not Billy Big Balls anymore I did not enjoy swallowing that pill <laughs> Were you Billy Big Balls? No, I thought it was. <laughs> I was listen, I was a sergeant. I'm going to walk straight into the oh. best job ever. I'm amazing. You, you know you, what I did? You know, I was in the Paris. I was amazing. I'm going to yeah. go straight into uh, you know a leadership position, a management position. Oh yeah, no dramas whatsoever in the industry. I don't understand. Yeah, you're going to see you later, see you. Why aren't you responding to my CV? 
<laughs> why is respond to my job application? Who was I talking to? Uh, I can't mention the name. There's someone who's got, I'll mention you, you after. I was, uh, there was a guy who, long story short, <clears throat> Billy Big Bollock Syndrome, got out Billy Big Bollock Syndrome, and he had, he applied for a couple of jobs to a, a security company, a big security company, applied for a couple of jobs to them, they didn't, they didn't get back to him. And I remember him telling me this, and he was whinging about him, he's fucking not getting back to me, it's bollocks, they should, they should respond to job you know, application. I was like, mate, you think about how many applications mm -hmm. they get, you're not going to get a response. Right, fast forward about a month, they ring him to offer him a job, which he hadn't applied for, a different job, and he told them to bugger off. He said, no, not interested, you couldn't bother to return my calls, you've lost me, you've lost me, you've lost me. And bear <laughs> in mind, he was unemployed. <laughs> he had no job. I was like, oh my God. Just but in that mindset, yeah. in that mindset. You know, the reality is when you leave, to most people, you're just, you're just another person, right? They, if they find out you're ex-military, that, that sparks a little bit of interest in them, maybe, which they may vocalize and they may not, but they certainly don't understand that you have real significant experience that is applicable in Civvy Street, in the working environment, because they don't understand it. They, they, they don't, they can't see that. Yeah. And, it, and it's really hard to convey that to convey that to people if you don't understand it yourself and two if you do understand it in a way that isn't give me a job I'm fucking awesome because that's not what it is which comes to I mean I know that Bridewell are going through the armed forces employee recognition scheme process now got bronze already got, got yeah. bronze already yeah. right yeah. and and so yeah. I've so in my started doing the same uh, going through the process and what that's I did pay it a bit of lip service before I came to the job I was in now because I think, oh God, people just want that badge because it looks good for a company, blah, blah, blah. But from what I've seen internally within where I work is that actually it's a really good way to educate to to educate like the workforce who could be interviewing an ex-soldier or ex-sailor or ex-man or woman. Great point. Yeah. Because they understand it they understand it better. Like our HR department is all over they they really actively um they put in extra effort. To try and if they get an application from a C, from someone ex military and there's something on that they don't understand that they go I don't and it looks like it could be suited to the role but something they don't understand they'll they'll come and ask someone ex military in the business yeah Hugh what does this mean this says you're a combat engineer or this says you're this course or whatever what what is this what, what does it mean I have to explain it to them they go okay all oh, right I understand and they, they, it's it's really good and they do that because of things like armed forces employee recognition scheme which gets you to actively engage with the ex-military in your workforce and just they understand it better. It's really good. Yeah, um, and Bridal really support that that journey. We've got, a, I say, a small team. There's probably, you know, yeah, probably about 3% of us within the business now, um, ex-service, ex-servicemen and, and women. Um, 3%, 3 I think it's about 3%. I'm trying to look at the numbers, I think. I look at the group that I'm sort of managing. Uh, I think there's about, about 20 in there. The company's what? 200 plus so yeah so we're probably getting on about two two three percent of the the business and it's growing i think um but the, you know bridal really support it you know full terms of reference are in place we we try and do a lot of the briefs we have people that are joining the the group for family and friends the grandparents were in they've got you know they really want to be part of that 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 group and understand more about what we do um so we're in the fledgling stages of doing that um be great you know again linking up with other industries and other sectors to join those partnerships to learn about what it looks like and you know cross skill in between these 
between us would be absolutely fantastic. But it's, it is a journey for us. Um, and it's really weird that, you know, not all service people want to join, want to be in the forces network, strangely enough. Which I can, you mean I can, your internal military network? Yeah, some, yeah. some of the internal, like, do you know what, I don't really want to be part of that. Or reluctantly turn up because it's like, no, I've, I've dropped that. I dropped that when I left and when I handed my ID card in. I don't want to be part of it. You know, I didn't try and leave it behind. So I'm equally educating the internal people about the benefits of what it's about, as well as the company and the people around it. Um, I don't want it to be a, a sort of big thing within the business uh, and, and, and over, you know, make it too sort of, I mean, that's not too popular, but it's not, it's, 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 really, it's really good that we do these things. But I don't want it to be a thing. It's just a group of, ex-service people getting together doing the right things in the right environment being supported by the managers and leaders and just helping them out where they can to just refine these edges support them in the business environment uh, yeah and just keep that culture there for them I just um, but I don't want it to be this big you know we're all military and you know, want to keep that 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 arm badge on. You don't turn up every day, and as soon as we go into the the teams meeting, try and become the squaddy again, which is what people might actually think. You know, as soon as you get on there, you're throwing banter around. Um, I don't want to get into that. Really. It's really dangerous. dangerous. It's just it is dangerous. It's almost like you don't want it to be the opportunity to become that squaddy again. You, it's not that environment. It's um, it's a different it's a different uh, kettle of fish for me. Yeah, we I we. We, I, was, I know what you mean about not people not want to get involved. We're going to finish off in a minute. But people not want to get involved. We've got about I think we're at ten percent, ten eleven percent of the of the workforce. We're two thousand strong. Ten, 10 or eleven percent are military, but or ex-military or serving reservist, or are a spouse of someone who's military or a cadet instructor. You know all the the, uh, the criteria for the employee recognition scheme. So about so that's about two hundred people, right, mm-hmm. across the globe. But most of us are UK based. Of that two hundred, we've got maybe. 50 who are actively involved with the network and to your point not everyone wants to do it but also part of the network is we we have a lot of staff who are part of it and, and just take part in the events and stuff um who aren't ex-military just because they 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 like to be part of it and learn and hear the way because the way we interact and because it's very different it's very different we find it's really good yeah. for, for, for the internal um camaraderie and stuff you know i'd, I'd prefer it the other way around where there was more non-military people that were joining the the group mm. so we could learn off each other mm. you know you don't want to bring all those tr- you don't want to bring all the traits I mean we've got some brilliant traits we've gone through them all some brilliant traits but equally there's some bad ones as well <laughs> so you know bringing that together looking themselves in the mirror and going I'm, I'm actually a, I'm a bit of a dick that way <laughs> yeah, I've still got that and looking at everybody going oh I'm, yeah I've still got that yeah. so I just you know I'd like to bring the wider audience into our group and refine refine us down a little bit as well sometimes um what else what have we not covered you want to cover how do people so uh how do people find you find bribe and find out about the academy you mentioned that you're setting up so yeah um all through linkedin you know bridewell's you know got quite a big footprint um go to the website um bridewell.com you'll see all the services that we you know that the that we offer the managed services, the cybersecurity, the pen testing, all those elements that give you an idea of what bridal really is about, to be fair. You know, a good view of what the cyber industry is doing at this moment in time. 
Um, I think once you've seen the services, you'll understand where you might want to be and how you want to progress career options. I think the next piece is then going into the, um, rather going onto the website and putting some contact details in, going onto the social media. There's a big presence and it shows you around, you know, some of the initiatives that that bride will are pushing in terms of its academies and um, and graduate sort of schemes. So I'd, I'd implore everyone to just have a look at those and, and, and search around. And equally, just, just you can see me on the social media on LinkedIn. Um, TikTok. I, not TikTok. <laughs> I am not a TikTok man. Yeah. The I'm only sure TikTok and I, I do. I saw, I'm, sure, I'm sure I saw you doing that, the, the, the uh, Wednesday Adams dance <laughs> on TikTok. I saw it. With the bride belt t-shirt, on. I'm joking. Do you know what we were in? Uh, we were in the offices in um, in, in our London offices the other, the other week on Wednesday, and I'm like the I am like literally the old man. Genuinely, I am like father time of the business. I think I am father time, and um, so I'm in the middle floor, and, and there's like two floors of TikTok because TikTok's in the same building. Oh right. So um, and, and and again, I can. I, I'm still shocked, <laughs> genuinely shocked. At three o'clock, the bar opens in the office. I'm like, really. Like three or four o'clock, the bars open, free... B- the, the TikTok office? Just, it's like a... Oh, you know, can you imagine these films that you watch where people are on beanbags playing Space Invaders and yeah. playing table tennis? I've seen Facebook HQ, it's like that. Oh. Yeah. And I'm walking around in my um, tweed, you know. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> my tweed and mustard trousers. Um, <laughs> everyone, everyone's at least 30 years younger than me going, what's Father Time doing in this office? Drinking our beer, sitting in our beanbags. Get rid of him. Who are you? <laughs> so, but I quite like it. I quite like it. It's it's fun. I think that's re- I think that's a really good point. You know, sometimes about that transition with the guys. You know, coming coming in when they're seeing younger people, really good quality, solid technical people in a different environment. It's absolutely. You know, there's, there's a guy last week just coming. Ex REF. Um, it was his first day on Wednesday in the office, looking around. His, his eyes were like, you know, saucepans. Like, what environment is this? So this is the TikTok environment, the young. TikTok. This is a TikTok environment, young man. Get used to it and get me a beer while you're at it. So, uh, does the bar generally open at three? I think it's three. Oh my god! Oh, I should three. not work in that workplace. I should not work there. Never go in there. Uh, yeah, no. it's just it's bad. Yeah, I say, what do they do? I was going, what do they do? What are they doing all day? In there, what are all these social media people doing? TikTokers, so uh, yeah, it's interesting, but yeah, or what a, what a place to be, what an exciting, exciting times, and what a place to be! It's brilliant, definitely been a pleasure, mate. No, thank been you, a pleasure. No, cheers thank for you time. for inviting me down, much appreciated. And uh, good luck with all the uh, the armed forces initiatives, right? Well, yeah, that should be good. Hoping to come back here maybe this summer, get something set up. Um, oh, yeah, have a few socials at oh, the Rugby for Heroes Festival. Rugby for Heroes. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Might even bring my boots. Yeah. Good. Bring I, them. I think bring not. Them. <laughs> we're after a water boy. Gum yeah. Shield. Gum, gum shield. Yeah, I get a gum shield after this. After this we podcast, I'll probably need a, I need headgear and a gum shield. The last, the last Rugby for Heroes festival. No, the one before last. I mean, we talked about it just quickly. We played. So our Force of Barbarians, right? We turn, the, when we play, the, t- the players just turn up on the morning. We don't have any training sessions. And you, basically, people get prioritised if they've never played for us before. And if they're near the venue. So it's just about the inclusive rugby. For people who can't 
So, so for people who can't go and uh, like commit to training twice a week for the local club, but they want to play rugby, yeah, yeah. so they can come and play for Forces Barbarians. We rocked up. We got we did a completely mismatched fixture, and it was Forces Barbarians who are who are mostly veterans' age, thirty five plus, right? Yeah. Versus Pacific Islanders Rugby Club. Oh, nice. My God, my God. Honestly, they turned up. Got on the pitch and it was just fucking carnage. Carnage. We had a lacerated, I think in the first half, lacerated eyeball, discate finger, fractured femur. That was all on our side. And it was people who played that match who never played, they haven't played rugby since they were kids. Since they were kids. Nightmare. It was like, oh yeah, nightmare. When, when's your next one? I don't one? know what the point I was making there. <laughs> <laughs> we're, not, we're not playing them again. They? No, they play all the time and they're all, they're all like Fijian Samoans. Yeah, yeah. Well, Pacific Islanders. Units. Yeah. Units. Absolute units. Anyway. I'll dodge that bullet, but thank you very much. Yeah, completely off top of there. No, thanks, mate. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. That's it. If you enjoyed this episode, why not become a H-Hour patron? H-Hour patrons get exclusive access to premium content. There are private interviews with previous guests and with this guest that nobody will see except for the H-Hour patrons. So before this podcast was recorded... I recorded an exclusive Q&A, a shorter interview structured around eight questions. All the questions were chosen by patrons beforehand, and that interview is online now for patrons. That happens every time. Patrons also get access to all of the episodes before anyone else. They get advanced viewing of the episodes. And you also get other perks and bonuses. All of the information is on charliecharlie1.com. Just hit the menu item, become a patron. It'll show you everything there, including access to the H-Hour Discord community and private patron-only channels on there. So go to charliecharlie1.com and hit the menu item, become a patron. Easy peasy. Thank you for being a supporter. Subscribe to the channel, and I will catch you on the next episode.